Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. I heard a sermon, and I don't know this very often, but I heard a sermon from one of my favorite pastors, H.B. Charles Jr. And uh, for several months now, I've listened to it over and over, and he brought out some great points that we often miss when we look at the actual crucifixion of Christ. And uh, largely, the ideas and context of my message will be borrowed from uh, this dear brother in the Lord. And uh, I think that's good, that, that we would look at a text and see some things that we don't see when we normally read. And so I want to bring out some of these points. And there are some points that I'll bring that differ from the perspective of that particular brother, but there's some really good meat in this text that we often look over. And so I want to begin with reading uh, at verse 32. It says, Two others also who were criminals were being led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing, and they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on, and even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. In introducing this text to you, I'd like you to see that we have the greatest historical event that has ever taken place. Bar none. There's no other that is even close, especially for those who believe and follow Jesus Christ. This is the greatest truth historically, but it's also an eternal truth. And as we look upon the death of a man named Jesus, we look upon the face of God Himself, we look at a single man who was both truly God and truly man. And for those of us who sit today under His Word, we recognize a great truth that we call the Gospel. This gospel is commanded by the Bible and also reaffirmed through all the epistles by Paul to be the central truth upon which all other truths are tested. That we may recognize that the gospel is the greatest truth. It's the central message of all the Bible. There is no other message in the Bible except for this gospel truth, Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The Lamb slain before the foundation of the world the only sacrifice, the only propitiation for sins of mankind. The, the, the Bible commands that Jesus Christ be central. 
This is the inherent message in every text. It's also demanded that Jesus Christ and the gospel be the finite focus of every Christian believer. Doctrine is important. What we believe about certain things in the Bible is very important. But everything of our lives, both temporal and eternal, hinges upon what we believe of the Savior, Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was crucified, as we see in this text this morning. This is the reality of our world that not everyone believes the same gospel. Not everyone believes that the gospel is the focus of our message. Not everyone preaches a message of Christ crucified. There's a watered down gospel as we saw this morning in Galatians chapter 1. There are many false gospels. There are many things to lead us away from the cross and to lead us to works righteousness to legalism. And unfortunately, that's the, the path that most will follow in this world. That's a path by which large, many, quote-unquote, professing Christians will follow. It's not a path depending truly upon Christ. They're not looking or searching for Christ in every passage and in every sentence. But for every minister and every preacher, every pastor, every true Christian, we must focus and never stray Never graduate from the gospel. The message of the cross is a message of the Savior, the Son of God, the Son of David, God incarnate, being hung upon a tree, that being a curse. Praise the Lord for such a curse. Praise God that He would provide a propitiation for our sins. An innocent man willing to go to the cross. But the world has found every excuse possible to pervert this gospel. They found every excuse to draw your attention away from Christ and on to something else. I mean, it's amazing that those who preach a false gospel would take your eyes off of Christ and try to put your eyes on something else of God, the law, as if that would save you. The very reason for the law being that it would confront each and every one of us of our sin. That we can see just how unrighteous and just how wicked we are. That we needed this Savior, this Messiah, Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, it's not prevalent in most church messages. This morning, you'll hear the message of Jesus Christ crucified. You'll hear the message that your works are no good. You'll hear a message that you are just like the two criminals hung on either side of Jesus Christ. It says this in Galatians chapter 2, which we'll be reading next week in Sunday school. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is what Paul is saying. And he says, And I was with you in weakness. And in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible in words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Let's take this attitude that Paul has of the message and the gospel of Christ. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we assemble before you this morning, We're a wicked creature in need of your eternal 
most gracious forgiveness, the mercy that you hand out for no other reason than your good pleasure. And God, we ask that you would pour your mercy and your grace out upon us this morning. Lord, when we read this text about Jesus, may we see not only that Christ has died, but there are men receiving punishment. No man will escape it. No man can subvert your just punishment, God. But there is one who will take our place, who will take the burden of sin upon himself and release to us his perfect righteousness. God, would you show us this morning in this text the wonderful mysteries of the cross, the truths of your Son as he's crucified, as he's gone forward to do what no other man could do, what the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do, what no earthly sacrifice could pay for. Lord, allow us to see ourselves this morning and in that, Allow us to see the greatest of the greats, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. Amen. So today what we want to do is review these accounts in Luke chapter 23. Everyone surely here has heard of the crucifixion of Christ and you've probably read this passage many times. And it's a good thing that most of the time when we focus on it, we see Christ. We see salvation of the one criminal. But oftentimes we miss all the things happening around Jesus that caused Jesus to need to go to the cross. We miss the purpose for Jesus' coming. And that sinful men needed a propitiation. And so we review this event that has led to redemption. The actual payment of the sin debt. This is not just one event that leads to redemption, but this is the only event that leads to redemption. This is the only way a man may be reconciled to God. This is the truth. There's no other way to be saved. Many like to claim that. There's this idea of universalism that there are many ways to God, but the truth is that there's only one, and Jesus Christ Himself tells us about that. He says that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one may come to the Father except through Me. It's a reality. We must face it. There are no other means by which we may be spared from the wrath of God. And I contend with you that the death, the burial, the resurrection... And the ascension of Jesus is the most important message given in Luke and throughout the entire Bible. Because if we have not this one moment, no one will be reconciled to God. You can forget going to heaven. That doesn't even matter. But without Christ dying for your sins, no one is reconciled to God. No man can stand before Him No man can escape punishment. No man's sins may be cleansed. 
No one is presented without spot and blemish. But praise the Lord, Jesus Christ went to the cross. This is the message of Luke. This story is the full embodiment of God's sovereign grace. The grace upon mankind that would bring forth salvation. Without Christ, there is no grace. And without grace, sovereign grace of God, you'll have no Christ. Because grace isn't earned. It's freely given. The message is Christ crucified and atonement for sins. But we must realize that Jesus, as He goes to the cross, wasn't the only man upon a cross that day. And I'll submit to you that each and every one of us is represented in the men on either side of Jesus Christ. No one's escaping His cross. No one is coming down from the cross whether you're saved or unsaved. You are upon a cross. You're not coming down. Death is happening. Death is coming. This is the truth that we have to deal with. The reason that Jesus is now hanging upon this cross as we see in Luke chapter 23 is because sinful man is in the world. Sinful man is committing atrocities against the just and holy God. Sin is prevalent. Sin is enjoyable to the natural man. So He comes. Jesus Himself being sinless. Being perfect in every way righteous, we're told. This account in Luke focuses as it should primarily on those truths and on one cross, but the cross that we see that we place so much focus on is in the center of the other crosses. Jesus was there because of the crosses on either side. Sinful man paying the penalty for his crime. But the truth is that only sufficed those who live in this world. God won't be appeased by the punishment you receive in this world. It won't pay for your sins. You can go to jail. You can pay a fine. Your parents can spank your bottom. It doesn't do away with sin. It doesn't erase sin. It doesn't cover sin. Sin bleeds through. Sin still stains. And so this is the story of three crosses. Jesus was hung amongst two men that day. Says that they're criminals, thieves, sinners. But as we know, as Jesus said, if you've broken one point of the law, you're guilty of all. So we can look at these men as murderers, idolaters, thieves, fornicators. You name it, they've done it. You name it, I've done it. You name it, you've done it. You're a criminal. Headed to the cross. We see Jesus in between these two men. Beginning at verse 39, it says, One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Don't think that this man really believed that Jesus was the Messiah. We know that's true. He didn't believe that. Said that he was mocking Jesus with the crowd. He was joining in with the world to mock the Savior as he's being crucified on the Christ. And he makes this comment, well, just in case he can get down, maybe hey, maybe you can save us too. 
Yeah, right. That's his attitude toward Christ. Are you not the Christ? Mocking sarcastically the Lord. It's a half-hearted request for help from a guilty sinner. Let me tell you something. We see this every day. The church deals with this every day. Half-hearted approaches to Christ that are looking to get down off the cross but aren't looking for forgiveness of sins. And so when we consider that this morning, as we look at the first criminal, I want you to ask yourself, am I making an accusation towards the Messiah, the Jesus Christ? Am I pointing my finger at Him, ordering Him to take Himself off of the cross and save me also so that I don't have to pay for my sins? But yet, I don't want to change because that's what the first man did. He's a guilty sinner. The man didn't believe that Jesus is king. He certainly didn't believe that he was the Christ because for the Jews, for the people of this time, the Messiah, the Christ, and crucifixion couldn't go together. There was an earthly kingdom they were expecting to be established and this just wouldn't work with their view of the Messiah. The problem is is that they had a man-centered view of the king to come. They had an earthly view of the Lord, the Messiah, the Savior. They didn't have a heavenly perspective of who Christ was. They certainly didn't believe that this man, as he hung on the cross, was the Son of God. And so he asked for Jesus to do something that is theologically impossible. He says, save yourself and save us also. The truth is this morning, that if you have sinned, and you have, you need a Savior, you need someone to pay your sin debt, and He can't do it if He comes off the cross. It just ain't going to happen. There's no payment for sin where a Messiah is not crucified. Where there is not blood spilt. The sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, they only appeased God for a time. And in a sense, they were just paying the interest. They weren't paying anything on the principle, the debt that we owe God, the righteousness that we need from Christ. He's the only source. And so you heard me say this Wednesday night, and it's true, and the more I think about it, it's even even truer. The, The saints before the time of the crucifixion were sort of saved and redeemed on a layaway plan. You see, they were put back for Christ to come back and get because guess what? The payment had yet been made. Abraham didn't go to heaven because he was perfect. Abraham didn't get into heaven without Christ paying his price. The Lord knew he would go to the cross. God knew he would send his son to pay the sin debt for every man since Adam. Women too. Children, if you're saved, Christ must pay the penalty. His blood is the only atoning payment that will suffice. And so there we have it in verse 39, this first man. He's asking Jesus to do what is impossible. Save yourself and us also. The fall required that men's days would be numbered. That he die, it says, in the day that you eat of the fruit, dying you shall die, or surely you shall die. There's no escaping that. 
In the same manner, God requires blood for the sacrifice of sins. The payment of sin. And it's not a sin that Jesus himself committed, but it's a sin that you and I committed. All sin is rooted in one sin, and that's idolatry. Putting something before God. Robbing God of his glory. Robbing God of the worship that he deserves. That's what it is. Every sin. Wrapped up in that one. We recognize that Christ wasn't present that day to pay the debt due just one man's sin. It was all our sins. And we must also recognize that in order to do so, he couldn't save himself. He couldn't come off the cross. He couldn't come down and save us also. It's impossible for any other blood but the blood of Christ to pay the sin debt. Hebrews 10.4 says, For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They don't have that. They need a blood atonement. We need a blood atonement. For the sins of man to be paid, Jesus must die. His blood must be shed. He couldn't save himself and you and I at the same time. It had to be one or the other. Thank God Jesus stayed on the cross. Thank God He didn't come down. Thank God He didn't take orders from a sinner crucified on the side of Him. Come down, save yourself, and save us. Lord, if He gave everybody what they asked for, what shape would we be in? If God gave that man, that unrepentant sinner, what He asked for, come down, save yourself, where would we be? Sometimes we need to thank God for not responding to our prayers the way that we want Him to. It's a shame. This man had no faith that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Jesus stayed on that cross for me. He stayed on that cross for you who have repented of your sins. And we'll see that as we examine the second criminal. But as we continue to read, we see that Christ never responds to the man. We never see a response from Christ to the man as he says, come down, save yourself, and save us also. He doesn't say, okay. He doesn't say, yes. He doesn't say, no. He ignores the man. From all biblical accounts, he doesn't respond. We have no documentation that he's ever spoken to this man. And it's my assertion that the providence of God is such that each man on either side of Jesus represents each one of us. The particular criminal represents the world. The first criminal. He represents those in the world. He represents the lover of sin and self. And ultimately, he represents a sobering reminder that there are those who exist and claim and proclaim to believe in Christ, to believe in God, but aren't willing to walk, aren't willing to confess their sins, aren't willing to admit their guilt. Maybe people sitting in these pews today. I believe in God. I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But they're not willing to admit their guilt. Every one of us has had to deal with this at some point or another. And if you haven't, you haven't been saved yet. But for those of us who believe in Christ, we've had to deal with this. We've had to look at our sin and say, I'm guilty. I deserve it. I'm supposed to be on this cross. 
There are those who exist that may be at church every Sunday, every Wednesday, every special scene, every event, every community outreach. But they're walking a broad path to destruction because they're looking at their goodness and their eyes and their hearts are deceiving themselves of the wickedness, the true wickedness, the wrath of God abides upon their heads. The criminal speaks, but Jesus isn't listening. Job 35, 13 says that surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. I believe this is the reality of what was happening as the criminal says what he does to Christ. He's not listening. He doesn't belong to God. He doesn't belong to Christ. And he's not hearing it. Here's the warning given to us by Jesus. Matthew chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And I'll say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That's the truth. That's the reality of coming to Christ. It's not a simple confession alone. It's not a simple profession alone. It's belief in Christ and admission of guilt and admission of sin and realizing that He is the Son of God and He's the only one that can take it away. It's not simply a prayer that you can pray. On this particular cross hung a man who would not be heard by Jesus because of his view of and his understanding of the Messiah, and his view of his own sinfulness. Simply put, the eternal life goes one of two ways. Eternal punishment, apart from God, separated from God, or eternal life with Christ. And it all hinges upon our response to Christ who is crucified here in Luke chapter 23. Your eternal life hinges upon what you believe of the Messiah as he's crucified. And we see the account in Luke chapter 23. Now on the other hand, we have the second criminal. who, In verse 40, rebukes the first. People love this particular criminal. And for good reason. As we see how he responds, he says, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly... For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. It's amazing. We all get excited about this man who is professing and proclaiming that Jesus is Lord here on the cross. He doesn't say it in those particular terms, but we get really excited about this. But we miss the salvation that occurs as the man is hung on the cross. He didn't go to the cross believing that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. In fact, that's not what he believed at all. See, here's a man who is now acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God. He recognizes his own sinfulness. We see that admission of guilt. That he says that we're here receiving our due reward. And here he's recognizing that our own sin will never be paid for without the blood of Christ. Without true saving faith. And if you're like me, you've kind of missed this because we go back to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 44 and it says this about this second criminal. 
It says, And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. He wasn't put on that cross believing in Jesus. He was already up there and he had gone all the way. He had been nailed and lifted up, reviling Christ. Something changed his mind. Something changed what he believed about Jesus. And I'll tell you this. He wasn't ordering Jesus around like the first, like the first criminal was. He wasn't saying, save yourself. He wasn't saying, hey, do something to let me know that you're Jesus. Perform a miracle so that I'll know you're Jesus. The truth of salvation is evident in this particular passage because the sovereign grace of God is displayed in the fact that this man went up on the cross not believing in Christ. He didn't see the best of Christ. He didn't see loaves feeding multitudes. He didn't see fish. He didn't see blind eyes being healed. He didn't see lameness being restored, uh, uh, use of limbs being restored to those who are lame. He didn't see waters parted. He saw Christ in the most humility that he'd ever experienced. And he says, that's to Jesus. Something changed his mind. And that should tell the church, especially the modern evangelical church at large, that we don't tell Christ to show us who you are. God said He's already done that. He's revealed Himself through His Son in the Word of God. That's all we need. We don't need an extra biblical revelation. We don't need a miracle. The miracle is that Jesus Christ, a sinless man, went to the cross willingly for sinners like us. Isn't that amazing? This man saw no miracles, yet suddenly his mind was changed. Suddenly his heart was changed. Suddenly he's not innocent any longer. He's saying, I'm guilty. You, you other robber, you're guilty too. This is a sinless man. We're not here for the same reasons. Jesus didn't come to save men from temporal circumstances. He didn't come because you need healing from sickness. He didn't come because you need money to pay your bills. He didn't come because your marriage is falling apart or because you can't control your children. The truth is that Jesus can handle all of these things from the throne if it so pleases Him. But Jesus did have to come because sin is different. Sin requires blood. God sends Jesus. God requires this blood atonement in order for redemption to be accomplished. And the King, the Savior, the Son of God, the Lamb, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, He had to come to earth. He had to live a completely righteous, sinless life. Without sin, there's only two sinners on those three crosses. And He had to do that so that His blood was shed for the remission of sins so that He could live to ever make intercession. This is a beautiful picture. The Roman Catholic Church believes that you need to go and confess to a man your sins or that you need to tell someone or something about your sins. But the beautiful picture here is that Jesus Christ is the man in the middle. There ain't nobody else. He's the only intercessor between you and God. That man didn't have to go to a temple. 
He didn't have to crawl down off the cross and go to Jerusalem. He didn't have to kneel and pray. He didn't even call Jesus Master, Rabbi, Teacher, Holy One. He just says, Jesus. He recognizes this about Christ. He speaks to Him as if He knows Him. His mind has changed about who He is. This must be the attitude that we have. John 14, 6 again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. The one criminal wanted down off his cross. He wanted to escape punishment. The other knew he was guilty. He knew he wasn't getting away. He just wanted Jesus. First criminal isn't looking for salvation. Instead, his response to the crucified Christ reveals the attitude of his heart. The attitude of his mind. Here's a man that according to Luke and uh, his account that is unwilling to admit his guilt. Instead, he's sitting back pointing a finger, laughing at Jesus Christ as he goes to the cross. Mocking him as he's on the cross. Here's a man you would think that would be broken. He's all, I mean, listen, if you admit your guilt now, it doesn't change anything. You're already on the cross. There, I mean, you're already, the worst things happen to you. You've claimed innocent. You've claimed innocent. You've been found guilty. They've lifted you up, nailed you, and you're still unwilling to admit that you're guilty. It's amazing. He'd rather join the crowds. He's got this bad attitude, this bad response to the gospel. He's too busy mocking Christ to see his own sin. And the truth is that everyone here who has not been saved, who isn't born again, is doing the very same thing. We're mocking God. And maybe we don't say, oh, you're the Christ. But what we do is with our actions, we revolt against his perfect righteousness. His law. His precepts. The things that he says are pure and holy. We spit on them. We mock them. This particular criminal just wants to come down off the cross. He doesn't want salvation. And that's true in the church. Quote, unquote. A lot of people don't want salvation. They just want to come down off their cross. I'll give you this little caveat. Think about this. Jesus says, in the Bible, that we'll take up our cross. We need to take up our cross. Guess what? There's two crosses. Unrepentant criminal, repentant criminal. Everybody's going to a cross. This life is but a vapor. And if that's true, then this criminal nor is no different than us. We're all saved really at the last minute, it seems. But we're not coming down. Off the cross. So you can die on that cross and spend an eternity in hell or you can die on that cross and then take up that cross. But I'll tell you what it takes to take up that cross and walk daily with Christ. Same thing that we see in Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. To take up your cross means that you have to live after you've been crucified. There's only one way to do that and that's to live in Christ alone. There's no other way. And so let me pose it to you this way. This criminal is a liar, thief, adulterer, all the things that I, I named earlier, and he just wants to escape this punishment. 
as the first criminal receives his reward for his deeds, he in the truest sense represents the unbelieving world. He represents the ones who aren't willing, who flat out refuse to admit their guilt. This man, like all natural men, would rather join in with the masses accusing Christ. Accusing someone else, pointing the finger elsewhere, all the while he's wallowing in his sin. The worst part is that he's pointing the bony finger at the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, demanding that he come down. Demanding that he save this man. He isn't professing that Christ is the Messiah. The next point is important. We don't tell Jesus what to do. We don't tell him who to save, how to save them. Didn't work for this guy, won't work for you. First criminal is looking for relief, but he surely isn't looking for reform. That's the truth of the Christian walk. That's the truth of saving faith. That relief from sin only comes by the blood of Christ at the reform of the natural man. He must change his ways. And he can't do it on his own. It takes a supernatural work of God. There might be some sitting in the pews of this church that think they follow Christ by a simple profession. Profession of faith. By saying that Jesus is Lord. We saw that in Matthew 7. There are some that say these things. Yet, we have two men here. One who is saved going to heaven one who's going to hell we must have a change in the way that we view ourselves in sin this criminal wanted credited to his count time served but he didn't want the probation that followed now when we think about probation it's a period of good behavior that is supervised first criminal didn't want that he didn't want Christ's supervision he didn't want the good behavior he just wanted to get out He just wanted to have his time served, credited to his account, and think that his sin was washed away, but it just doesn't happen. The danger is that there are some, maybe even here, that claim to believe, yet they don't want the Savior to supervise their life. They don't want the truth of Christ and Him crucified to rule every action and every thought. The action of this criminal says that the cross is worse than an eternity in hell. He just wanted down. He didn't care about where he stood with God, but he wanted down. And so I ask, are you like the first criminal? Are you ignoring your sin, thinking you can just make a request of Christ uh, without conforming or repenting? Because it won't happen. As we turn back to our original text, Luke chapter 23, we'll see this. He says, save yourself and save us. The second criminal answers with this, do you not fear God? Do you fear God? It's simple. The man who is saved, the man who has experienced the saving power of the gospel and the bloodshed of Jesus Christ, fears God. 
He recognizes that he's condemned. He says, and we indeed justly. And then he makes this response to the gospel. The crucified Savior, as he hangs upon the tree, he says, Jesus, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know the most miraculous thing about that? The man goes up, doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And there as Jesus looks the most pitiful that his earthly body could ever be, broken, torn, beard pulled out. At his worst possible moment, this man recognizes that Jesus Christ is still king. Not only that, he's not dying a, a, a permanent death here. As he dies, he's going into his kingdom. How many people have missed that? When we read Luke chapter 23, this man, a lot of people like, the, like this part, the part where he says, and he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. But you know what? This man wouldn't have wanted to go to paradise unless Jesus Christ was there. That's just the truth about it. And we miss it. We miss that the response to the gospel is that no matter how things look, no matter what they appear to be to the world, that that Savior on that cross as He is bleeding and dying is the King coming into His kingdom. He's the only sacrifice for sins. The brother uh, that had this sermon that I listened to so many times on this particular passage brought out a good point that I'd like uh, like to bring out to you. He says, uh, quoting Scripture, that what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And he said, what good does it do if a man is wearing, driving the best car, wearing the best clothes, but his soul is naked before God? And I'll present it to you in another way. Not only is this soul naked, but it's decaying. And it's black as black can get. And the only way to change that is for Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins and that red blood to present yourself white as snow. Second Corinthians chapter six, verse two says, For he says, In a favorable time, I listen to you. And in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is a favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We've seen Christ crucified. We've seen two criminals, one that believes. Under salvation, one who doesn't. We have three crosses. The cross of redemption, the cross of rejection, and the cross of reception. And as I think about these things, I think just how wonderful it is that God's justice system isn't like ours. Think about this. What do we always want? We want a speedy trial. God gave you a speedy trial. As soon as you sinned against Him, you would be condemned to hell. There would be nowhere else for you to go. Thank God we don't get a speedy trial. Because if we did, we'd be dead before we came out. 
It's a wonderful thing for us to be crucified with Christ. For Him to live and for us to live and be able to take up our cross. We need to ask ourselves, which criminal are we? You're a criminal. I'm a criminal. I want to be the one that says, Jesus, remember me. We have a special opportunity. Some people say that this man, there's books written about it, say that he was the luckiest man to ever live. But I'll tell you, he's not the luckiest man to ever live. Some people say he was saved at the very last moment. And I'm telling you today that you're on your cross. This is your last moment. This may be the last time that you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. This man isn't the luckiest man to ever live. One thing, I don't believe in luck. But the second thing about it is you want to talk about somebody who's had it good, had it made? You've heard the gospel and there are no nails in your hands or feet. You don't get a chance to behave well. That won't get you anywhere anyway. This man, Jesus says, you'll be with me in paradise. He didn't do any good deeds. He didn't pray a prayer. All he did was admit his guilt and admit that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that He alone was able to save. That He was the Son of God. The Messiah. And here we stand. We see the same Christ crucified. We have the ability to respond. And guess what? There's a good chance that you'll walk out of here today. There's a good chance that your cross hasn't been lifted up for final moments. How wonderful it is. How loving and gracious is our God. How long-suffering is He that He didn't give us a speedy trial and that there's a good opportunity that we might live another day. So consider your response to the Gospel. Consider that your life, eternal, hinges upon how you respond to the crucified Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we come before You, once again today, words can express the magnitude of the salvation that you've given us in your Son. No one here can understand what it's like to be perfect and then willingly take the punishment of someone else. No one else, God, could come back after receiving the full wrath that they deserved or our sin. No one else could take upon themselves sinfulness and in turn restore to someone else righteousness. We have none, God. We have none except that which comes from Your Son. And as we see Him go to the cross we see that He takes all of our sin and You have treated Him, God, as if He's committed every sin that we have ever done. And then in that same token, He treated us as if we had lived all of the righteous life that He had lived. 
How majestic is your name, O God. How wonderful is your salvation. How perfect is your plan. That none of these things that happened were coincidence. This man didn't coincidentally get hung up on the cross next to Jesus. But it was your plan so that we today might meet in this building and see the wonderful saving power of the gospel of your son. To know that he is the Messiah. To know that he is Savior. And to admit our guilt and turn from our sin. That's the requirement. Lord, it couldn't get any simpler than that. We can do none of those things unless you give us faith. You grant us repentance. God, I pray for each and every person here today that you do that. That you continue to grant us repentance. And for those who have yet to respond to the gospel, I pray that the thought of Christ crucified is both humbling and magnificent. Because the truth is that the gospel is the only powerful instrument to save humankind. Lord, we thank you for all that you do for us. And we ask that you bless the meal that we're about to receive. And we pray that we would uh, speak things that are appropriate for Christians and that we would exalt the name of your son above all names and worship you in spirit and in truth. In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Amen.